Welcome to Lockdown Science. This show is what happens when two biologists isolate together and need to find something to do with their time other than meticulously documenting the behaviour of their cat. I'm Ellie. And I'm Andrew. And if you listened to this show before, you'll know that it is absolutely COVID-free. We bring you the best science news from the last couple of weeks that has nothing to do with the pandemic. We just felt like people needed a space away from that. I've been chatting to a lot of people this week who are just feeling more exhausted than ever. I mean, there are signs of spring. In the UK, we have a roadmap out of lockdown. But even so, it's just all a bit much at the moment. So for the next hour, we'll help to get you some distance from everything related to the C word. Yeah, I mean, we've had some really nice days recently where the weather's been glorious and it's been sort of warm enough to be outside in a t-shirt in the sun. I mean, we're recording this late at night the day before it goes out. And frankly, the weather today has been miserable. It's just been beating at the window. I was like, writing the script and I was like, oh yeah, signs of spring. And I look outside and I'm like, what signs of spring? Hmm? Mm. What's, what's happening here? But In exciting news, we have got a pair of blue tits appearing to build a nest in a nest box in our garden. There you go. You come here for the wholesome content like that. We give you cat news. We give you blue tit updates. That might be a new feature on the show, actually. If they they stick around, we'll, we'll update you each week of how the blue tits are doing. They better stick around. We've got content to fill. Science of the Week. Right, well, in a change-up to the regular schedule, Ellie has had a really busy week. And so this week, we've changed... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. In a change-up to the schedule, Ellie's had a busy week. What you should be saying is, in a change-up to the schedule, I'm doing the quiz because Ellie's had a busy week, rather than Ellie usually does literally nothing around here. I mean, if you'd let me finish what I was going to say was, Ellie's had an even busier week than normal. Oh, I thank you. Do you prefer that? Yes, I do prefer that. Thank you. And therefore, I am going to be the one setting the quiz questions. Yes. you. To be fair, it was very lovely of you. I was a little bit too stressed to fit it in this week and you did come to the rescue. Yeah. So after all the mockery that I get for my scores that fail to meet five out of five, how are you feeling this week? Genuinely terrified. (laughs) (laughs) When I mock you, I don't expect to be on the other side of this. I thought I was safe. I could just... You know, sit here being all high and mighty, like, obviously. I, basically, you know how Paxman is on University Challenge, where he's like, well, obviously it was Verdi. That's how I'm feeling right now. Yeah. I think that I'm going to get mocked. Yeah, the boot's on the other foot. I know. Yeah, come on. Right, off we go. Question one. What was recently found glowing at the bottom of the ocean? <gasps> oh, gosh. I mean, some sort of fish presumably at the bottom of the ocean it's going to be some kind of crazy deep abyss creature yes do i get that do i give it to you for fish can you be any more specific an anglerfish no some sort of siphonophore no you were closer with fish okay no i can't because i'm I'm thinking of of every single type of fish i can think of from the abyss and i can't think of a single one which would be a good answer yeah well to be fair this is quite surprising a vampire squid no okay stick with fish i'll give you half a point for fish not one but three species of deep sea shark were recently found to be bioluminescent nice in a paper published in frontiers in marine science dr jerome malafe and colleagues recently announced that three species the kite fin shark the black-bellied lantern shark and the southern lantern shark, all found off the coast of New Zealand, exhibit bioluminescence. What do you know about bioluminescence? 
Well, I know it's a way that some animals basically create their own light, right? They kind of glow. And you can see these amazing videos where people go swimming at night and they're sort of, you know, moving their arms and there's like glowing plankton around them. Yeah. But with sharks, I'm not sure exactly how they'd create that light. Yeah. So bioluminescence is something which occurs when, as you say, organisms create their own light. And they do this in a couple of different ways. They either use chemical reactions, which they're doing directly themselves, or it's produced by bacteria living inside their bodies. This is particularly common in the deep sea, where so little sunlight penetrates down that the world is otherwise very dark. So bioluminescence may be used for signalling to potential mates, attracting potential prey, or for dazzling predators. But in the case of the sharks, the researchers speculate as to whether the bioluminescence may be being used for camouflage, because it's primarily their underside which glows. Oh, okay. So is this a case that... No, actually, I don't know. I was going to say, is it a case where it makes the underside look like it's the top of the water with the sun? But are they too low down yeah. for that to matter? No, exactly. That That's exactly what their, what their hypothesis is. Mm. So these creatures live in the twilight zone, which is between about 200 and 1,000 metres deep. And the reason it's called the twilight zone is that you've got a small amount of light reaching down. It's not completely right. dark. So viewed from below... An animal swimming through the ocean is still naturally silhouetted against the sunlight coming down from the surface. Okay. This is thought to be the reason why lots of species of fish, including other sharks, and seabirds like puffins and penguins, have dark backs and pale bellies. When viewed from below, the paler belly helps them to reduce the backlighting from the surface. And while viewed from above, the darker back helps them to blend into the abyss. So that's true of species living in surface waters if they just have a sort of dark back and a pale belly. But living lower down, a pale belly might not be enough on these sharks. So the hypothesis is that the bioluminescent shark is doing exactly the same thing. And this either allows them to hide from potential predators or from potential prey. Wow. And the other thing which is notable about the discovery is the size of these sharks. The largest of the three species is the kite fin shark. How long do you think it is? I think I'm going to be surprised by quite how large an animal that exhibits bioluminescence is. Okay, is it one and a half metres long? Ooh, pretty good. Mm. Yeah, it's 1.8 metres long, or it can grow up to 1.8 metres long, which makes it now the largest known luminous vertebrate. Yes, okay. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking, because usually when you think about luminous vertebrates, you think of things that are really quite small. Yeah, exactly. And even things which are bigger, like anglerfish, the bioluminescent part is only really... the a tiny little lure on the front of their head so it's not like bioluminescence over a large area whereas interestingly the pic- there's a picture in this paper of the bioluminescent cells in this sh- in these sharks and it's all the way along their underside so they've just so got a totally glowing tummy yeah basically weird yeah. they do well in a sort of disco party right yeah as long as it was filled with water yeah otherwise they'd sort of I don't know, just flop, 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 flop around on the, the floor fairly unhappily or they could, you could have, oh, if you had them in an aquarium with one of those like walkthrough tunnels, yes. you could you could dim the lights and then you could just party to the disco of the bioluminescent sharks overhead. Oh, don't give anyone an idea. They're going to capture these sharks. We want to leave the sharks where they are. Yeah. To... But can we make like fake ones and then have an aquarium party? <laughs> because that sounds incredible. That does sound incredible. To be fair, that completely wouldn't work because the pressure that you'd need to sustain in order for the sharks to survive would probably break the glass in the aquarium because down at a thousand meters the pressure in the ocean is going to be huge so you wouldn't be partying under the sharks you would be partying with the sharks yes i think they wouldn't enjoy that no i don't think you would either in that kind of pressure (laughs) right 
Question two. What new piece of technology might soon be taking to the skies in a swarm? In a swarm? In a swarm. I have absolutely no idea what this is, except is it one of these cases of all the bees are dying, so let's create fake bees out of tiny drones? Basically, yes. Yes! (laughs) I teach enough undergrad stuff. Yeah. So this week, researchers from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, led by assistant professor Kevin Chen, launched a new design of tiny drone which is modelled on insects. Mm. Although drone technology is now quite common, drones still suffer from two major disadvantages. They're not very manoeuvrable and they're not very robust, meaning that they can neither avoid crashing into things in tight spaces nor recover if they do crash. Mm. Rather than being powered by motors like most drones, these new drones have a thin rubber cylinder which, when supplied with electricity, squeezes and elongates rapidly. And this movement is used to power wings, which are modelled on the structure of insect wings. They literally what? look like little insect wings. Have on they the side like the painted them like insects as well? Yeah, well, well I, I'm not quite sure whether it's painting or structure, but they did have almost sort of a vein structure to them. Wow. Yeah. So being soft and flapping at nearly 500 times a second... What? Yeah, mad, means that these tiny robots are highly manoeuvrable and can withstand mid-air collisions. So how small do you reckon that these drones are? Okay, well, if you're modelling them on insects, then I want to say about the size of a bumblebee. Yeah, any idea what size that is? I'm going to go with three centimetres in length. Okay, I've got it in grams. Uh, oh, but that's okay. that's probably reasonable, yeah, maybe a okay, bit in grams, in, in grams, in grams, um, yeah. Okay, three grams. Much less. Oh, yeah, actually, bumblebees are not that heavy, are they? No. 0.5 grams. 0.6 grams, mm. Yeah. And that's about the same weight as a large bumblebee. Right. So, researchers hope that these drones might one day be able to work in confined spaces, such as providing safety inspections inside turbine engines, conducting artificial pollination, or assisting with search and rescue missions, because they can manoeuvre around. Yes. And kind of get into places where people and, you know, sniffer dogs and things just can't go. The only downside at the moment is that these drones require a really high voltage to power them meaning that they currently only work if tethered to a power supply. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> yeah, that would be an issue. Yeah. So so actually, there's a video of, of them working online, which I'll post in the podcast description. And essentially, they sort of take off, but you can see these little copper wires. Oh, tra- like tra- trailing on off leads. Them. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing to watch, and you can see the little rubber thing kind of going, vibrating in and out wow. really rapidly. And the flight is just incredible. It does look kind of like an insect, and it moves more like an insect and it can do like they get it doing a somersault it's got so much more maneuverability than your standard drone so i'm sure the team or someone else will soon work out how to achieve the same results with less power and then they'll be able to fly free yeah i mean this is an incredible first step towards that right yeah it's like a complete change in how drones are built and how they work, which is just incredible. Yeah, I mean, the reason why I brought up the agriculture point of view is that this is something which I've heard people say before. It's like, if all the bees die, then we'll just, you know, pollinate the fields with loads of worker drones. And I have issues with that, which is that shouldn't we be conserving native pollinators rather than, you know, spending money on tiny drones? But if this has applications like search and rescue and safety inspections, 
then great. That sounds like a really practical use for them. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I'm 100% against the use of them for pollination because, like, yeah, we should really just invest the money in conserving pollinators because there are other reasons for doing that. But for other applications, this is still really cool. And also just for the sake of, isn't it amazing, the technology that we can produce these days? Yeah, I love it. I mean, the, the one time that I've tried to fly a drone, it was really hard. And it was really not very manoeuvrable, which I was blaming on myself. But, you know, now these researchers have said that that's a problem with drones. Yeah. Clearly not my fault. We'll have to let you loose with one of these little robotic bees and see whether you can fly them instead. No, we're going to let me loose with a whole swarm of robotic (laughs) bees. Okay, question three. What was recently found in Borneo for the first time in 170 years? (gasps) Okay, it was a black browed babbler correct did i get it exactly yeah. right yes the black browed babbler malacocincla perspicillata i think <laughs> and before i go any further i should give a shout out to one of our regular listeners sagara for this suggestion sagara is an excellent birder who's done loads of cool research in india and indonesia so he was super excited to find out about this story and suggested that it would make a great question for this week so a specimen of the black-browed babbler was first collected in the 1840s and was formally described, weirdly, by Napoleon's nephew. But that is very random. Was yeah. he a birder? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess a, a scientist working in a museum somewhere. Mm. I mean, maybe, you know, the world was just a tiny place back then. That's true. If you had money and you were kind of in with the right family, I suppose, it made things easier. Yeah. But since Still then... Still does. <laughs> but since then, the species has never been seen again. And there was some uncertainty about where the original specimen had actually been collected, whether it was from the Indonesian island of Java or on Borneo. But last October, Mohamed Saranto and Mohamed Rizki Fuzan spotted a bird which they didn't recognise and managed to catch and photograph it before releasing it. When they sent the photographs to experts, the bird was identified as the long-lost black-browed babbler, which everyone had basically assumed was extinct. So there was the original one by Napoleon's nephew. Yep. And then there was this photograph one and that's it. Yes. Wow. Well, so I think actually these two guys saw the bird on a number of occasions Mm. in the same place. And they basically kind of went, what's that? And they they just assumed that it was something they didn't know, but other people would know what it was. But they decided to try and catch it anyway. So they, they managed that after a few times of seeing it. And then took these photographs and sent them off. And then lo and behold, it's a long lost species. That's incredible because birds are so commonly watched, right? A lot of people go on holiday to look at birds. Yeah. So you just think, what is the likelihood that you are going to be the person to find this long lost bird? It must be such an incredible experience. You yeah. Know? Like it's if you know what you're looking for, you know, you might find a new species of insect. But birds, yeah. I mean, yeah. wow. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And the thing is, there's so much diversity in places like Indonesia that we are still discovering new species. But at the same time, with so much habitat having been lost there, when a species was last found 170 years ago, I suppose you're always going to assume that it's probably just gone extinct since then Mm. and there's no more of them left. And in the paper reporting the rediscovery of the species, the authors note that this bird has actually been missing, in inverted commas, longer than any other Asian bird species. Wow, so it's the okay. longest, that's the, the kind of the longest gap plugged from the last description of the species. Yes, you really wouldn't expect to find it again. No. It was like, okay, it's, it's gone. Yeah, so because this species was only known from a single and very old museum specimen, it also means that scientists can play spot the difference. Oh, look for a bit of evolution. No, just to find out exactly what the species actually looks like. 
So museum specimens tend to fade over time or lose colour during the taxidermy process. Ah. So while the beak and the legs of the museum specimen are brown, in real life the bird actually has a beautiful sort of metallic blue beak and dark grey legs. That is so interesting. Yeah. And actually, if you think about taxidermy, not only do things fade, back in the day there was some hilarious taxidermy, yeah. right? I don't know what the old specimen looked like, but you think of some of the taxidermy specimens that you see which were made in like the 1800s and they're like overstuffed their limbs are facing the wrong way their eyes are like you know they've got really terrible fake eyes put in yeah so actually that's the most striking thing about this one the museum bird has this bizarre bright yellow glass eye um, which they put in and actually the real bird has a a sort of maroon colored iris but the museum specimen basically just looks really shocked (laughs) (laughs) It looks because it, 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 birds are stored as skins, right? So they end up being quite stiff, and they often look sort of rigid. But this thing looks rigid and really surprised. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, to be honest, I would not have looked at that specimen and the photograph of the live bird and in any way thought that they were the same species because the taxidermy was so dodgy. Yeah, and because they, because it's faded and it's different colours. So actually, with someone saying, "Yeah, that's the same thing," you look at it closely and you can see a bit of the patterning particularly the the black brow on the head that is there in the museum specimen still but like it's tricky because these things do look so different and the thing that i found strangest is the thought that when this bird was originally found back in the 1840s charles darwin had not yet published on the origin of species wow that's how long the bird has been missing for oh welcome back so unfortunately it's probably because there's been so much deforestation on borneo it's almost certain that this bird is threatened from habitat loss. But now that we know where to look for it, we can go out and see if we can find more and try and assess population size and, you know, learn a bit more about its ecology as well as just the fact that it exists. And presumably some researchers are going to do that at some point. I think so. I think basically as soon as restrictions allow, they'll be out there to, to go and do it. Oh, well, that's a nice news story. Yeah. Thank you, Sagara. Question four. What has been recovered from a drive in Winchcombe, Gloucestershire this week and is the first of its kind to land in the UK? This is a particular type of meteorite. And I've been seeing this on BBC News with the family whose drive it was in are just like so excited about it. And also the scientist who found it is so excited about it. And everyone's just really happy and excited about this meteorite. Yeah, it's a really cool story. So on the 28th of February, a meteorite was seen over the skies of Europe. And scientists have now tracked it down and a 300 gram lump has been recovered from someone's drive. What's cool about it, apart from the fact that it's a flipping space rock which (laughs) just landed in a village, is that it's a fairly rare type of meteorite called a carbonaceous chondrite. What does that mean? This means that it contains organic molecules and amino acids. These are the building blocks of life. And one theory for how life began on Earth is that these chemicals were brought down by meteors billions of years ago and essentially seeded life here. So are you telling me that aliens landed? Possibly aliens just landed. (laughs) Big news. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Now it only needs, what, a few more steps and some rapid evolution. And it'll be like the plot of the film Evolution where the aliens, uh, the meteorite lands. And then, you know, a week later, there are primate-like aliens attacking people on earth so little detour here we had a virtual film night with some of our evolutionary biology friends the other night and uh, one of them suggested that we should watch the film evolution which is like an early noughties 
very cheesy film, some stuff that now you're thinking, well, that would not have been made yeah. now. That's that's problematic. But it is such a good film to watch with evolutionary biologists because it's almost so bad and it knows that it's so bad at the science that you can just sit back and relax. It's not like that middle ground where you're like, oh, they're trying to be sciencey and they're failing. It's like, no, no, I think they're in on the joke. I hope they're in on the joke. Yeah, it, w- it was sort of laughably terrible, but with some cool cgi fake aliens so i mean so i guess uh i mean this is not an isolation recommendation but maybe it is now get your evolutionary biology friends together on a zoom call and all go and watch evolution together 100 percent. we have digressed so (laughs) (laughs) so aside from you know potentially spawning alien life this rock was recovered so quickly that it's said to be comparable to other samples returned from actual space missions. No. Mm. But carbonaceous chondrites are rare. Only 51 have ever been found on Earth, out of over 1,200 meteorites which have been witnessed falling. And this is not only the first carbonaceous chondrite found in the UK, but the first meteorite recovered here in 30 years. Wow. So how fast do you think the meteorite was travelling before hitting the Earth's atmosphere? Before hitting the Earth's atmosphere. Okay. 30,000 kilometres an hour. That is not the units that I've got it in. (laughs) (laughs) Hang on a second. get with the times. Are you using Imperial? No, I just have it in kilometres per second, not kilometres per hour. Okay. Just using calculator on my computer to work that out. You're not actually that far off. So by my calculation... Your guess comes out at 8.3 kilometres per second. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it was 14 kilometres per second. Okay. So, ish. Ish. Yeah, ish. But let's just take a moment. 14 kilometres per second. I don't know. I think I can run that fast. I right? can't get my head around that kind of speed. <laughs> like, what? That's fast. That's, yeah. that's what I'm going to say about that. That is fast. Anyway, the remnants were tracked down with the help of video footage of the meteorite, which I assume was essentially used to triangulate its exact location and trajectory, including a load of footage from a group called the UK Fireball Alliance. They sound really cool. Can we be friends with them? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Never mind our evolutionary biology friends. Let's be these guys' friends. Yeah. I feel like the UK Fireball Alliance is an excessively cool name even for a group dedicated to filming falling space rocks. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's cool. So essentially they have a a network of cameras set up across the country. And I guess they're kind of ready to film things coming in and try and work out where they're falling. But also, this is the first one that's been recovered in 30 years. So they've been sort of sitting there just waiting for their time to shine. Presumably other meteorites have fallen. They just haven't been recovered, right? I guess so, yeah. There's a difference between how many have fallen and how many they've found. Because it can't be that easy to find them, even if you know the trajectory. Yeah. I mean, it's like a needle in a haystack, right? So, do you know, did it leave like a big burn mark on the drive? I don't know. I mean, 300 grams is quite sizable for a chunk to have found, but it's like not that big. It depends how fast it was going when it actually hit the ground. Because 300 grams, if you chucked at someone, could really do some damage. Yeah. I think I think the article I read mentioned that the owners of the house had sort of heard a thud on their okay. drive. But whether that's sort of, you know, a thud equivalent to a cat jumping off a fence or something, I'm, I'm not... I, I've got no... I don't really know. But I, I don't think there was a crater in the middle of their drive. It didn't, like, <laughs> didn't like take out their car on the way through kind of thing. Okay, so we don't have, like, a new tourist attraction, which is the Gloucestershire Crater. I don't... Yeah, well... 
well, no, but maybe they they should put a little podium up at the point, like ring mark it off, and they could start charging people to go and see the the location of Britain's most recent meteor. I mean, we probably can't go on a foreign holiday this year, so I'm not sure it gets much better than Gloucestershire meteor. Yeah, exactly. Sounds great. And finally, question five: Who has become the world's oldest wild avian mother? Again, her name is Wisdom. Am I right? You're right. And she is 70 years old. Yes. And what is she? She's an albatross. She is. Wisdom is a 70-year-old Laysan albatross who was first colour ringed in 1956. Since then, in one of the world's longest-running continuous bird ringing studies, ornithologists have been recording her breeding at Midway Atoll in the North Pacific. In that time, she's thought to have hatched more than 30 chicks, which is impressive going for a species that can only breed once every two years and takes a few years to mature. And albatrosses are famous for mating for life, but Wisdom is thought to have had a few different partners because she keeps outlasting them. <laughs> oh, that's like very good for her, but also quite tragic. Yeah. She's been with her current mate, though, Akia Kamai, since 2010. Aww. So they've had 11 years together. So like a silver relationship. Yeah. And even more weirdly, Wisdom has also outlived the biologist, Chandler Robbins, who originally ringed her in 1956. Wow. Dr. Robbins died a couple of years ago, aged 98. Oh, he did really well. He did then. really well, yeah. But he's still been outlasted by his famous albatross. Oh, that's quite sweet, actually. Yeah. I'm sure he'd like to know that she was doing well. Yeah. So Wisdom is the world's oldest known wild bird, because there have been some parrots in captivity that have, have lived for, I think, pushing 100 years. Oh, so not even the oldest to breed, the oldest the wild o- bird. The oldest wild bird. Yeah, wow. the oldest known wild bird, at least. But it's possible that there are other albatrosses out there which are even older, because these are really long-lived species. In fact, it's quite possible that Wisdom herself is actually older than 70, because when she was first ringed, she was already an adult and was estimated to be five years old, simply because that's the youngest age at which a Laysan albatross can breed. So that was kind of a minimum. She had to be at least five years old in 1956. Oh, but she could have been a bit older. But she could have been older, in which case she could be older than 70 now. Wow. But with all the threats to albatrosses over the last 70 years, from entanglement in fishing gear to plastic pollution in the oceans and shifting food supplies because of climate change, it's amazing that this old bird has weathered so many changes on the high seas. I feel like, you know how we did an impromptu Christmas special, by which I mean I found a story and then somehow made it related to Christmas? Yeah. I feel like this could be the impromptu Mother's Day special. Oh, Because yeah. in the UK, at least, it's Mother's Day on Sunday. Yeah. So, happy Mother's Day, Wisdom. Absolutely. And the truth is that Wisdom's story actually goes back about as far as our ability to study individual birds through ringing. So we actually have no idea how unusual this is. When Wisdom herself was re-ringed by Robbins in 2002, and just imagine that, he'd ringed her nearly 50 years earlier and then spotted this bird again in 2002 and was like, that bird's got a ragged ring on it, I need to replace it. Caught her and realised that it was his own bird. That's that literally adorable. I know. Like, I might, maybe I'm overworked, but I might cry. <laughs> So at that point, she was aged 51, based on his original estimate of her being five when first caught. And at 51, she already pushed the known age of Laysan albatrosses up by 10 years. Wow. And she's been extending her own record ever since. 
So no one knows exactly how long she could live, right? She's nope. still breeding. She's still in good condition. Absolutely. Albatrosses are long-lived, slow-growing species, which invest heavily in their offspring. And it's possible that aside from human-induced threats to their survival, this is actually relatively common for these birds. And she could quite easily keep going for another, who knows, 10, 20 years. Like, oh, It's just phenomenal. Many happy yeah. returns, wisdom. Oh, no. Well, somewhat devastatingly, at the end of that quiz... You have scored four and a half. For the listeners' benefits, I am in fact doing a victory dance right now. Yeah, she is. Does that beat the highest score I've ever it got? It does. The highest you've ever got is four out of five. Well, there's a reason why we normally do this the other way around then, eh? Because if you were doing that every week, it would it would get boring. Whereas with me answering the questions, it keeps it spicy because we never know how many I'm going to get. Journal Club Right, what have you got for us this week for Journal Club then? Well, firstly, do you know what autotomy is? Uh, something that you can do to yourself? Yeah, <laughs> we're going broad, it seems. I'm, I'm interpreting half of the word. <laughs> yes, well, it's the ability to shed one of your own appendages. You can't okay. do it. Don't try. No, this is not I, something that no, humans I don't can want do. To. But like a lizard dropping its tail. Exactly. It's probably most famous from some species of lizards which let their tail drop off if a predator grabs them by it. Okay. But it's not just lizards that have this ability. A couple of species of African spiny mouse can release patches of their skin, so even mammals. Some spiders can do it with their legs. Some starfish can do it with their arms. Basically, the list goes on. Sometimes... These animals can even grow back the appendage that's lost. So we have a friend who works on axolotl limb regeneration because axolotls can lose, I think, any of their limbs and they just grow them back again. And they're a really interesting study system because it would be great to work out exactly how they do it because essentially if we could work out how to trigger that in humans then it would be life-changing right yeah and i think one of the odd things about axolotls at least at least for vertebrates is that most vertebrates like lizards can lose their tail and regrow it a little bit but it's sort of stumpy and not quite the same as before whereas axolotls are actually able to grow a fully functional Mm. limb again yeah they just regenerate completely weird so so far i've been talking about patches of skin and limbs Now, you can see how an animal could continue to live without these if it went a little bit wrong. Yeah. You know, even if it takes time to regenerate or it doesn't regenerate at all. But what if I told you that two species have been found that can shed their whole body? What? Yeah. So they just just become a head? They just become a head. Gives a new meaning to losing your head, doesn't it? Am I right? Yeah. A paper by Mito and Yusa published this week details new behaviour observed in two species of Sacoglossin sea slugs, which are a type of mollusk. Yeah. They had colonies of these slugs that had been raised in the lab and colonies caught in the wild, which they were using to investigate the slug's photosynthetic ability. So at school, you're taught that photosynthesis is something that only plants, algae and maybe some bacteria do whereby they take in sunlight and they convert it into energy. But there are some animals that have hijacked this method of making energy, and these sea slugs are two such species. They eat algae, which contain cells called chloroplasts, which the algae use to convert sunlight into energy, and the sea slugs incorporate those algal chloroplasts into their own cells and use them to make energy for their own bodies. So, studying this, really cool in itself, and this is what the researchers were doing. 
But then they notice a severed head in one of their colonies. Weird. Pretty grim, you might think, you know, R.I.P. slug. But the head was still moving and feeding. What? Yeah, 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 it just got weird. It's like something out of a horror movie. I know, I know. (laughs) Scientist comes into darkened lab late at night for some reason, and they look across to the tank, which is sort of illuminated in the corner. And amongst all of the slugs, they just see a head. And they're like, oh my God, that's weird. Something's, something's been eating my slugs. And then they go over and have a look and the head's moving. And then they look behind them and sea slugs have bolted the door. (laughs) (laughs) It was all a trap. Uh, Yes. In fact, coming to your cinemas in 2021, Halloween, (laughs) lockdown science does horror movies. Anyway, it had shared its whole body including its heart, kidney, intestines, and most of its reproductive organs. Okay, so this is pretty weird, right? Like you said, yeah, stuff of horror films. deeply. So they then observed their wild-caught and lab-reared populations daily for signs of amputations and found that over the course of their lifespans, five of their 15 lab-reared slugs and three of their 145 wild-caught slugs also shed their bodies. So it's not a one-off. This happens a few times, yeah. right? I mean, as well as this, they found that many more slugs shed more minor body parts. The kind of thing we'd expect, right? So of the slugs that did shed their bodies, they found that the wound from the head separating closed after just a day. And young slugs' heads started feeding again just a few hours after separation. They regenerated the heart within a week and the whole body had regenerated in around 20 days. That's... You look really horrified. I don't know why, but in my head, I'm still, because we've now mentioned horror movies, I'm still kind of simultaneously seeing the image of kind of a sea slug head and also the image of a sort of severed human head doing the same thing. It's just a bit weird. (laughs) You need to get that out of your head. It's going to make everything so much worse if that's what you keep having going on. (laughs) Now, this process was much more successful for younger slugs than older slugs. All the slugs older than 480 days old that lost their heads died within 10 days and the heads never fed on their own and the bodies just shriveled up. So it's like a young a young cell ability that, that's lost over time. Yeah, it seems to be. I don't know whether it's a really energetically expensive process or what's going on. I mean, you think it might be right. I mean, I feel like it would be quite tiring if nothing else, you know. Yeah. And then the researchers noticed that all the slugs, so all of them, not just the ones who lost their heads, all the slugs had a groove around their necks, which seemed to be a predetermined breakage plane for where their heads would come off if needed. Oh, weird. Like when you got those little cut here pictures on like, you know, a pack of cheese. Yeah. So they gently tied a piece of thin nylon string around this point on the necks of six individuals and they found that all the slugs shed their bodies where the string was. So to find out what the purpose of these strange self-amputations are, they also tried inducing them to shed their bodies by imitating a predator attack by pinching or poking another set of these slugs in the neck. Yeah. But this didn't cause any shedding. Oh. That didn't do anything. Okay. They also say that predator defence seems unlikely as a reason because adult Saglossin sea slugs have very few predators because they're really good at blending into their surroundings and they're toxic if eaten. Mm. This method also wouldn't work very well for predator escape because the process of shedding their bodies took a few hours. By that time, a predator would have like fully monched on them if they wanted to. Yeah, I was also thinking that the head on its... Even if it happened instantaneously, the head on its own doesn't have a mechanism of getting away. You know, a lizard sheds its tail and legs it. 
but like a head doesn't have that option. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem to be for predator defence, but I guess one way it could be is if you hope that they get full enough from eating the body and then they're done. I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be that anyway. Okay. Instead, the researchers theorise that it might be a mechanism to remove parasites because in one of the species of slugs, all the individuals that naturally shed their bodies had parasites, but once the body had grown back, they no longer had parasites. Ah, interesting. They say it could also be a way for them to escape if they get tangled in algae, which is what they feed on, or if they ingest something toxic and need to expel it. Mm. Which is actually very smart. Imagine if instead of getting food poisoning, you could just grow a new body. Yeah, I mean, painful perhaps, but I mean, to be honest, that time that I ate that old reheated rice, (laughs) I think I would have happily grown a new body instead of (laughs) suffering the consequences of what actually happened. (laughs) So there's the why, but also what about the how? How do you shed almost all your organs, including your digestive tract, and just keep going? Yeah. The researchers think they manage because they have a digestive gland spread out across their whole body, including their head, and it contains cells that maintain ingested chloroplasts from algae. So some of this function remains intact when they lose the rest of their digestive system. So it means that they can't digest food per se, but they can keep getting energy from photosynthesis. Ah, okay. So when they're observed eating, they're eating algae. Exactly. Mm. So so algae is their diet. Yeah. So these are all just theories for now. And more research needs to be done to nail down the exact evolutionary purpose and mechanisms. But whatever the outcomes of those, we now know about an awesome new example of animal behaviour. Yeah, that... Uh, my, that's amazing i know my mind is blown you should look at the paper again the paper will be in the description of the podcast but they have photos of the sea slug's head on its own without a body and it's just kind of mad you just think well okay it's a dead sea slug it's yeah. not it's it's gonna regenerate that's so weird so next time you're in a panic and you lose your head at least be like a sea slug and carry on regardless what have you got for me this week is it other things that regenerate from decapitating themselves no no, uh, bit different. Odd. Yeah. I'm going to start with another question because I've got a taste for it. What is the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything? You want me on the podcast to work out what the meaning of life is? Yes. In um, two words. Love, chocolate, cats. That was three and they're all wrong. <laughs> and as fans of Douglas Adams and A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy will know, the answer is in fact 42. Oh yes, accurate. And in honour of this... Douglas Adams now has a major geomagnetic event named after him. But what is a geomagnetic event? Well, the Earth has a magnetic field surrounding it, which is caused by the iron in the Earth's core. This gives the Earth polarity, a north and a south, and is the reason why compasses work. The magnetic field is also used by many animals, from turtles and pigeons for navigation, and even protects the Earth from the most severe impacts of solar radiation arriving from the sun. (laughs) sorry i'm gonna pause here because you are looking at me like i have completely lost it (laughs) i was just really trying to take it in i'm sorry that's my concentration thing i felt like maybe i'd completely thrown you with the starting with a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and douglas adams and then talking about something perfectly normal about why the earth has polarity no this is just my thinking face at school people always used to say that i looked grumpy when i was thinking but apparently now i just look absolutely insane so that's well you know you look like you thought i was insane oh well that's fine then do carry on but while to us at least the earth's magnetic field may appear fixed in fact it fluctuates and every so often even flips polarity so the north pole becomes south 
and the South Pole becomes north. What does that mean? If I had a compass, yeah, it, would it be the wrong way? It would point the other way. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it's literally just like the magnetic field flips for a bit. And so then, like Santa doesn't move? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. No one, as far as I'm aware, has tested the effect of magnetic pole flipping on Santa. Okay. Also, possible that, depending on when Santa evolved... <laughs> possible that magnetic pole flipping hasn't happened since santa evolved so maybe he's never experienced it we don't know we don't know future research so this flipping of the poles is what's known as a geomagnetic event and scientists are able to roughly trace the occurrence of them through changes in the geological record one of the main changes associated with geomagnetic events is a dramatic reduction in the Earth's magnetic field before and after the flip. And this means that the protection afforded to the Earth by the magnetic field is reduced and vastly more solar radiation, or, as apparently it's properly called, galactic cosmic rays, oh. which sounds very Star Wars, are able to reach down to the Earth's atmosphere. Now, it was previously assumed that this should have some consequences for the global chemistry and climate and therefore for life on Earth. But scientists have been unable to pin down the sort of strong effects that they expected to find. Mm. However, a new study by Professors Alan Cooper and Chris Turney and colleagues has changed this by using radiocarbon dating of ancient preserved trees. By examining the trunks of cowrie trees preserved in wetlands in New Zealand, the team identified a period of severely suppressed growth which coincided with high levels of carbon-14, the radioactive isotope of the normal carbon-12, which is an indicator of atmospheric change. By lining up the information taken from the trees with other geological climate records from things like Greenland ice cores and lake sediments, they were able to place a much more precise date on the most recent geomagnetic reversal than was previously possible, with the reverse phase occurring between 41.5 and 41,000 years ago. Mm. However, the weakest period for the magnetic field occurred in the transitional period prior to this reversal, around 42,000 years ago, hence the naming of the Adams Transitional Geomagnetic Event. Oh, yes. Yeah, now it all comes together. So tell me, what was going on in the world at that kind of time? What sort of species are we seeing? This is not that long ago. We're in the Pleistocene. So that's the geological epoch. It's the sort of small-scale geological time period before the Holocene, which is the one that we were in until they declared the Anthropocene, which is the period that humans have impacted. Mm -hmm. So the Holocene is basically the period in which life as we know it evolved. Very stable climate, seasons in the temperate zones, good conditions for growing crops in many parts of the world and that's sort of seen to be the kind of garden of eden in which in which humanity evolved but humans were around prior to that it's debatable i think but up to about 80 or 100,000 years ago possibly even a bit further so like 40,000 years ago is kind of halfway through human history so we've got some neanderthals we've got neanderthals yeah exactly and actually i'm going to come on to that okay but we're not going to get there yet okay so this adam's transitional geomagnetic event also happened to occur simultaneously with a grand solar minimum. So so a solar minimum, right, is when there's less activity from the sun? Yes, exactly. And this was measured by the occurrence of another radioactive isotope, beryllium-10. So when the team simulated the impact that these two events in combination would have on the Earth's climate, the results were huge, with severe changes in atmospheric chemical compositions, such as increased hydrogen and nitrogen oxides, and decreased ozone in the stratosphere. 
And these changes began to line up with other known climatic events, such as the rapid expansion of an ice sheet over North America, advanced glacial periods in South America and New Zealand, and shifts in the location of the boundary between tropical and temperate zones, interpreted from sediment layers and pollen records. One of the apparent consequences of this was also a major drying event in Australia, which seems to coincide with the extinction of many species of megafauna across the continent. Oh, controversial. Yeah, and this extinction was previously blamed on the arrival of humans, but humans actually reached Australia around 8,000 years earlier. And so it was one of those things that had never quite lined up. As in, why would they have not gone extinct already? Exactly. Because, because why would it take 8,000 years for the humans to kill them off if they were just hunting them too much? Yeah, so megafaunal extinctions in other places in, in North America and in New Zealand coincide so well with human arrival. You know, it happens within the first couple of thousand years. So why would it take four times that in Australia? Now, importantly, although the magnetic reversal was quite short-lived, it only lasted around one and a half thousand years, including the transition phases. The climatic impacts appear to have persisted for much longer, suggesting that they tipped the Earth's climate into an alternative stable state. And this is pretty much the limit of what this paper demonstrates. <laughs> a large-scale shift in the global climate, with some environmental consequences caused by the destabilisation and reversal of the Earth's magnetic field. Mm. It's a pretty cool result. That's a pretty big deal. And it's one which has been carefully pieced together from multiple strands of evidence. But what I find really interesting is how this paper was interpreted. So in the penultimate paragraph of the paper, the authors list a few other concurrent events which might have been associated with the Adams event. These include an apparent increase in the use of caves by people, mm. the widespread appearance of and increase in cave art, although it is noted that some art is well known from before this period, and particularly that included the arrival of red ochre handprints on caves, okay. which is red ochre being a, a pigment that was quite often used. You get a lot of these handprints where people have put their... You can see the outline of You the can hand. see the outline yeah. of the hand in red ochre, yeah. And, as you alluded to, the extinction of the Neanderthals. Mm. The authors speculate that people may have started to use caves more during this period to shelter from the increase in solar radiation and that the red ochre may have been used as a form of sunscreen. They do reference that, but there's not really anything in this paper itself to suggest why they think the red ochre would have been a good sunscreen, or how people would have known that there was an increase. I mean, I guess you can feel an increased radiation because it feels like burning, and I guess maybe you yeah. kind of learn, you realise that if you put this stuff on your skin, it doesn't feel like it's burning so much. I suppose some animals use dust as a protection from the That's sun, true. right? So yeah. There's nothing to say that humans wouldn't do the same thing. I mean, you can feel if your skin is burning, right? It starts to get very sore. So maybe they copied the animals and put some dirt on them. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So, but so the suggestion is that they could have been doing this for sunscreen and then they start realizing, oh, we can paint with this. And they were already painting, but perhaps in ways that didn't preserve. Mm. But now that they're spending more time in caves, they're painting on cave walls, and that's where we start to see it a lot. But this is all speculation. It's a correlation at best. But you wouldn't think it from the media headlines flying around. End of Neanderthals linked to flip in Earth's magnetic poles, for example. <laughs> in fact, there is evidence that Neanderthals survived much later than this event. And experts are not really sure exactly when they went extinct, but I've heard some estimates that they were still around sort of 24,000 years ago. So this is ages after. But because of the headlines I'd seen, 
I started reading this paper, expecting some major revelations about human history, but instead found a careful alignment of the geological, chemical and paleoecological evidence for historical changes in the global climate, which I think really goes to show how you cannot always trust the way that science is portrayed in the media. I agree so much. I think that there are some really great science journalists out there and there are also some people just really trying to sell papers. Yeah. And it's sometimes hard for at first glance to tell which is which. And that's bad for really good science journalists, right? Because you don't want to be lumped with all the people just trying to make sensational headlines. Yeah. And and I've got to admit as well, this paper came out in science. And science and nature have a reputation for sort of presenting some stuff which is really flashy and controversial and isn't necessarily backed up by the strongest of evidence but in this case like the evidence that the authors present is robust and it looks good and actually everything that they put in the paper is justifiable and then it's very much the last paragraph of the discussion where they sort of say oh it's kind of interesting that it lines up with these other things and they say nothing more and yet that's the thing that's been picked up on in all the headlines just because you know magnetic field flip kills neanderthals makes such a good headline i mean it also sounds like a great sequel for lockdown science films <laughs> we'll do the horror film and then we'll do the sort of sci-fi yeah maybe we should maybe, maybe we should start listing these out of like how we're going to cast them that's true yeah. you know get in touch with us if you fancy a part or you know you want to give us the millions of pounds that will do justice to the production of this film whether you want to act in it direct it produce it you know let us know we need all hands on deck. I mean, clearly these. we're the creative brains behind it. I mean, absolutely, yeah. But, you know, these are going to be blockbuster Hollywood performances. So we're going to need a large group of people to work on them. We are. Tom Hanks, get in touch, please. Yeah. We'll give you any part you want. Even the sea slug. Especially the sea slug. <laughs> I reckon he could do a really empathic representation of the sea slug. Animal Etymologies Last show, I focused on the sarcastic fringe head, which had a common name that was more fascinating than its scientific name. So for this week, I had to think about what other common names I particularly enjoy to see if I could find some equally fun scientific names behind them. And I realised that I don't know the scientific name behind one of my favourite common names. Before I give it away, do you want to guess what is Clamiphorus truncatus? Something with a body. Trunk. I'm... No, that's not where Truncatus comes from. Oh, You're okay. right, it does have a body. Well done. <laughs> it's an animal. Yep. It's a pink fairy armadillo. Okay. Their common name comes from the fact that they're dainty, generally only growing to around 12 centimetres in length, and they have a pink leathery shell covering the top of their bodies. So did you know the pink colour of the shell actually comes from the network of blood vessels underneath? Mm, no, I didn't. Yeah. As I said before, their scientific name is Clamiphorus truncatus. And this is very appropriate, but also quite a cute name. First of all, the genus name, Clamophorus. This comes from the amalgamation of a Greek word, clamus, meaning cloak or mantle, yeah. and a Latin word, ferre, meaning to carry or bear. Now, the species name, Truncatus, not to do with the trunk, it comes from the Latin truncare, meaning truncated or shortened. This could refer to the small size of the armadillo. It is, in fact, the smallest of all the armadillos or the fact that the back end of the shell is flattened. This is actually a cool adaptation that's related to its subterranean lifestyle. Relative to their body size, the pink fairy armadillo's front and back claws are huge, and they use them to dig through the sand and soil at like an alarming rate. 
but they also use their flattened bum armour to then butt the soil out of their way backwards <laughs> to make sure that they have room to breathe. Brilliant. They're amazing species. So they're, they're like tiny little sort of bulldozers. Yeah, basically. Reverse bulldozers. Yeah, so, so the truncatus could refer to the fact that they've got this kind of truncated back end, which yeah. is used as like a buffing tool. <laughs> The sad thing is they're also so rare that the IUCN, that's the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the NGO that assesses how endangered animals are, classifies the pink fairy armadillo as data deficient. That is, they just don't know enough about its populations to assess how well it's doing. They're nocturnal and, like I said, often underground. So even armadillo researchers struggle to find them. Would you like to know another cool pink fairy armadillo fact? Yes, I would. Their shells may help with thermoregulation. They're found in dry shrubland areas of central Argentina, where it's very hot in the day, but can get pretty chilly at night. They have a layer of soft white fur on their tummies to help with keeping warm at night. But their shells also help with this. Because their blood vessels are so close to the surface of the shell, it helps them to gain or lose heat as needed. Mm. So they're thought to be able to flex the shell to change how much surface area is exposed to the elements. It's a bit like having a sunroof, but one that's attached to your body and is a fashionable rose gold colour. Yeah, and also doubles as a predator defence. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's not the toughest shell that you've ever seen on this particular species of armadillo, but exactly, they can sort of roll into a ball and it's sort of a toughened exterior. I mean, you know what? If you're listening to this, go Google pink fairy armadillo. Even if you know what it looks like already, go Google it anyway and marvel at their beautiful weirdness. You're welcome. So in conclusion, they're the truncated cloak bearer. They are. They are the truncated cloak bearer. Isolation recommendations. Okay, what's your isolation recommendation this week? Well, you know how I'm always very proud of myself when I recommend a book because I so rarely have time to read whole books cover to cover. (laughs) Well, this is one of those weeks. This week, I'm recommending a book that we've both been reading recently which is The Brilliant Abyss by Dr. Helen Scales. Ah, yes. Yes. It's coming out very, very soon. I was lucky enough to be given a review copy by Helen's publishers because she was a guest on my other podcast, Us and STEM, last week. I wasn't asked to say anything nice about it. This is genuinely how I feel. It is an amazing book. It's about the incredible creatures that scientists have found and continue to find in the deepest parts of the oceans. It's about the history of deep sea exploration, the potential ways that the discoveries in the abyss could change our lives and the biggest threats to the abyss. I'm a biologist, right? You're a biologist. I even supervise students on marine biology. But reading this book, I realised that even I was underestimating how incredibly diverse and important the depths of the seas are. Did you kind of think the same thing? Yeah, definitely. I, like, I've learned so much from reading it about, I don't know, just... I think some of the ways that she sort of paints the picture of quite how deep the oceans go, the the sort of metaphors used to describe the depths of the ocean, the pressures that are felt down there, the vastness of the space and the trials of the creatures that, that inhabit it is just... Yeah, it's incredible. There's this bit in the book, which is quite close to the start, which I find really, like, mind-boggling. She's talking about if you drop a marble from a boat how long it takes to actually reach the depths of the ocean. I'm not going to spoil it for people who are going to read it, but it just puts the whole thing into perspective and it's a bit like, 
okay, my brain is exploding with this information. Yeah, it's such a clever way of doing it. I mean, there are just so many bizarre creatures and mind-boggling landscapes down there, and we're having a genuinely negative impact on it. Mm. It's scary. Yeah, I think it's very easy to think... And and this is what people have, have always done. It's out of sight, out of mind. Mm. And, you know, it took a long time for us to realise what was down there. And then even when we had, it was just sort of seen to be this this enormous invisible realm that we couldn't possibly damage. And actually, there's all sorts of things going on. We've already damaged it in so many different ways. Mm. It's It's just quite mind-blowing. So like I said, this book is out very soon. And I wholeheartedly recommend you check it out. But in the meantime, also download my other podcast, Us and STEM. STEM is spelt with two M's and that's available from Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can hear more on there from Helen about the book and about her career as a marine biologist, writer and broadcaster. And as an extra incentive, Bloomsbury, who are publishing the book, gave me a 20% discount on the brilliant abyss that I share with you in that podcast. So yeah, I recommend, I mean, I'm not saying this directly to you because you have checked it out, but I recommend the listeners <laughs> check it out. I feel like it's a really great bedtime read for salty sea dogs and land lovers alike. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. I definitely second that recommendation. Well, that's a very easy way to get out of an isolation recommendation for this week, just a piggyback on that. I know, right? I'll just uh, just slide on in there with you. I mean, a book takes a while to read, so I feel like a book is a double recommendation the book is worth multiple recommendations yeah it's far more than two twitter accounts well that's all we've got time for today but you can get in touch with us between shows through the magic of the internet you can follow us on twitter at lockdown science or on instagram at lockdown science podcast or you can send us an email at lockdown science podcast at gmail.com Send us your thoughts on this episode, recommend a species for animal etymologies, or follow a paper that you think deserves its spot on Journal Club. Or, just as Sagra did this week, a question for the question section, yes. which, all being well, will next week put me back in the spotlight. I thought you were going to say, or as Sagra did, just text us, and our number is zero. <laughs> <laughs> no, stop, please. <laughs> And if you've enjoyed the show, please also head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review and a rating. It really helps others to find it, and we think everyone could do with a bit more uplifting science news right now. Plus, it makes us happy to see nice reviews, and who doesn't want to spread a bit more happiness at the moment? Maybe we could do something where we like offer photos of Suki in exchange for nice reviews. Do you reckon that would take off? I don't see why not. I mean, <laughs> I, I've already thought that actually anyone who emails us ought to get emailed back a picture of Suki. Oh, that's a their, good point. For their troubles. I yeah. feel like I've been letting people down so far. Yeah, well, we need to go back through the inbox and, and just send everyone a gratuitous cat. <laughs> I mean, of all the gratuitous unsolicited pictures that you could send someone on the internet, a picture of Suki's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, you know, she might be sort of lying straight seductively in it but that's that's about it but we really can't help that that's not no. our fault <laughs> so yeah if you write a nice review dm us a screenshot of it on twitter or instagram and we'll show you what suki thinks of it in the meantime have a great couple of weeks and we'll be back in a fortnight with another episode of lockdown science on cam fm mm-hmm.